Welcome to Wireless Future. Uh, my name is Eric Larsson and I'm here as always with my colleague Emil Björnsson. Hello Emil, how are you today? I'm great as always, how are you? I'm great as always too, <laughs> uh, that's good to know. <laughs> so uh, today is uh, episode uh, 34, isn't it Emil? It is. It is, in fact, that's amazing. So I thought at some point we'd never make it to 10, but we made it to 34. Yes, and today I think we will also sort of start referring back to some previous episodes as well, because we are going to cover things that we have mentioned before, but uh, cover it in a different manner. We might indeed. And, you know, looking back, I think where we started the podcast, um, the very first episode that we recorded was on massive MIMO technology, which is a technology that both you and me have worked on for well, uh, well over 10 years by now. And uh, it was also the technology that made it to 5G, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there were lots of things that were discussed for 5G, extreme densification, uh, um small cells new waveforms and so forth none of this really resulted in anything or 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 made it i mean small cells have always been are and will always be limited by interference unless you make the cells cooperate face coherently which is essentially the cell-free massive mimo or or distributed massive mimo concept um so now uh, looking at the future um Still, we must ask the question, so what technologies are around the corner, right? And what are the driving applications going to be? And what performance targets are we setting up for the future? And uh, in that uh, respect, we'll also reconnect a little bit to... We did an episode, I think it was episode 10, like a year ago Mm. or so, on reaching the terabit per second goal. And that would be again the topic of the conversation today because Emil you attended in November 2022 a workshop at the Technical University Berlin with the theme how to achieve a terabit per second of a wireless yes precisely so how was the workshop (laughs) it was a a great experience i was going there physically and i think most of the speakers were there physically there were good attendants also in the room but also a lot of people attended online so it was great experience and it was sort of uh, this question that was asked in the title of the workshop that was uh, open-ended on purpose and people provided Mm. different types of answers and approaches to it and added different assumptions when providing their answers so there were a nice variety of different uh, thoughts around this topic Mm. so a terabit terabit per second that means so tera is 12 right so terabit means a million megabit per second do we need that high bit rates that is certainly a good question and uh, one of the things that we are are observing is that the data traffic is increasing all the time at an exponential pace so from some kind of accumulated uh, reason uh, the traffic will eventually grow to those numbers and i think when it comes to optical fibers we are trying to build those type of things right now so to have wireless connectivity that can provide similar numbers it makes sense that eventually we will be wanting to reach those numbers 
Yeah, maybe. But what are the applications? I mean, that would right. require such enormous transmission rates. Right. So uh, there are different reasons one can think about. One would be that we will use it to be extremely fast, but only for a very short period of time. So you sort of uh, fill mm. your cache in your device with a lot of information, everything that they expect you to watch on your TikTok or YouTube account in the next <laughs> few hours, and then you don't need to be connected. You could also think about that it will be the collective traffic of many devices that should share this, or you just want to design your system for extreme scenarios, and then knowing that due to the wireless propagation being complicated, I think there were the CTO from Huawei was there at the workshop and was sort of mentioning that as a rule of thumb, if you have a peak number, which would be one terabit per second, then one third of that is what you could expect at the average and maybe one fifth of it or even lower uh, is what you would get most of the time perhaps, or you can expect it to be there. So maybe you also need to over-design in order to get something more reasonable most of the time. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, but even a fifth of a terabit per second is quite a lot, right? right. So, but so you're suggesting here that the like use case would be that you just drive by an access point and during the short time where you are like in front of it, then you could quickly back up your entire hard drive or download in next months of video consumption, right? Um, or something like that. So there would be like the use cases of these enormous uh, bit rates. Yes, and, and from an operator perspective, some of the challenges that they are facing is maybe that people are not actively communicating with extremely high bit rates uh, when, but they're generating so much data, photos, videos, and stuff that needs to be transferred somewhere, either for storage in the cloud, or just because there is a lot of people who are live streaming their lives and other people are watching. So there seems to be a big trend in, in a lot of countries that there's a lot of video streaming going on all the time. Mm, video streaming, yeah. So I mean, even already today, I thought in the networks, it's like video streaming dominates the traffic, right? If you just count the raw bits. Yeah. Yeah, and how, how about like emerging augmented reality, virtual reality, extended reality, metaverse type of applications? Wouldn't they require also enormous like terabit-ish uh, rates yeah, where you are exactly. connected with both uplink and downlink, I suppose. I mean, if you are wearing some smart helmet or glasses, then you might have like camera or cameras even with high definition video that needs to go both directions with virtually no latency. Mm. Yeah, this is certainly believed to be the next big device that will start accumulating a lot of traffic in the future. So mm. if we, we saw like 10 years ago when people start to use their, their mobile phone for everything, then the traffic was growing much faster than today. Now it's maybe 40% per year, but when these new things are arrived, arriving and start to be used, it might be increasing a lot. And I've been trying to look for numbers on what people are predicting that you would need for these type of devices. Mm -hmm. And as you were saying, it's both uplink and downlink, where uplink usually is complicated and might be the limiting factor. Uh, but yeah. some, why, why, yeah. why are you saying the uplink is complicated? I mean, is that because of some fundamental aspect of wireless propagation, or is it simply because you have less power typically available on the uplink? Yeah, it's uh, typically 
that you have less power. So if your device is uh, topping uh, up at 200 milliwatt or something, then the base yeah. station can use 10th of watt of power. And also I think regulations are also more like for a user device, it's the total power irrespective of how much bandwidth you're using while a base station mm. can spread it out over the bandwidth. Mm. That's true, that's a good point. I mean, I mean, in most wireless networks, there is a fairly significant power imbalance between uplink and downlink, as I understand, right? I mean, mm. you have a couple of hundred milliwatt on uplink and tens of or even a hundred watt on downlink, and even for microcells today. Um, yeah. Yeah. So getting back to the numbers, by the way. Yeah, back back to the numbers. Yeah. So I think people are predicting everything from 200 megahertz, uh, megabits per second up to one or 10 gigabit per second. That is what you would need for some kind of 3D uh, metaverse experience, of course, with very low latency as well. So I think even those predictions are not up there at one terabit per second. They're no. quite far away from it. Uh, but it's, yeah, if many people will use this at the same time, or if you want to guarantee that this is delivered everywhere, well, then you probably need to over-design things. Right. I mean, there's still a gap. There are three orders of magnitude gap from a gigabit to a terabit. Right. right. So if a gigabit yeah. is sufficient for the metaverse, then well. But, but of course, it calls the question as to now terabit. What does terabit per second mean? Is it like a terabit per second in aggregate when you multiplex many... Uh, users together uh, from an access point or is it the rate per actually per user right so uh, is there like yeah I think that the most important thing is that the collective data traffic of all the users that are served by the same access point should reach mm. one terabit per second and that will happen much earlier uh, then uh, if you are connecting then this access point to the rest of the world, you will then have to send all of that collective traffic to the core network. And either you do oh, that yeah. with an optical fiber, or if you want to have a oh. wireless uh, connection for that one as well, well, then you need a wireless connection with one terabit per second. Right. Okay, sure. So, uh, but a terabit could really refer to like the aggregate rate offered to many users multiplexed by the same access point yeah. then um, mm. absolutely and I think this is also what we are facing today with uh, 5G network for example depending on what uh, uh, type of network I mean most networks today are in the 3 gigahertz band and maybe you reach up to 1 gigabit per second but you typically don't need that as a user so you you divide it between the the users that are sharing the network and uh, yeah with millimeter wave uh, where there is technology not being deployed very much that can reach up to 5 10 gigabit per second that's also not really meant for that a single user one it all the mm. time but either you take turns or you uh, at least on the average get a smaller fraction of it mm. indeed but then i mean a terabit isn't so far-fetched in terms of requirements right i mean if you think about a thousand people mm. standing somewhere like outdoors on a square or indoors maybe some arena or stadium or something and each of them wants to get this gigabit per second required to be in the metaverse then a thousand times a giga that's a tera so yeah. Uh, we are already there, right? So, um, so what in terms of technology do we foresee and or need 
in order to reach this terabit goal? Is it like more antennas or more bandwidth or, or something else or a combination perhaps of them? It is probably a combination of these things. So the way to sort of easily picture how do you reach these big numbers is that, well, you have a certain amount of spectral bandwidth and uh, in in Hertz, then and uh, you take that is the number of digital symbols you can transmit per second, and then each one of them you can encode a certain amount of information into depending on your signal strength, and that's what we call the spectral efficiency, and then you can transmit m- in parallel in different directions, different spatial ways, Mm. either to different users or uh, in different directions so that the receiving user also gets a signal from different directions that I think we call typically beams, but it doesn't need to have a shape of a particular beam. So if you multiply these things like the bandwidth with the number of beams that you're sending simultaneously and how much information per symbol that you transmit per beam, well then that multiplies up to uh, your total bitrate. Yeah, so what you're saying is like number of beams times the spectral efficiency per beam mm. times the bandwidth, right? But isn't there a catch here? Like, I mean, the more bandwidth you use, the more power you need in order to combat noise, right? Because uh, received noise or noise power at the receiver scales proportional to the bandwidth also. And uh, the more beams do you transmit, the more power you need because ultimately you need to split your total radiated power over the beams um, so either you need i thought here also a lot more radiated power or you need to sacrifice transmission range or both yes so these are, are some of the the issues then uh, there are also solutions when it comes to having multiple antennas here because at the at the re- receiver side you uh, and at transmitter side you both get directivity from having many antennas and you get the possibility of uh, uh, having directional transmission so you can get at least some of these uh, uh, power losses from splitting the power between uh, bandwidth and, and beams by just having more antennas that are collecting a bigger fraction or that is directing the signal more accurately. That is absolutely true. I mean, so effectively, with more antennas, we increase the aperture, yeah. which of course combats the uh, link budget um, uh, loss that we have to take inevitably if we or when we increase the bandwidth. So, what what transmission ranges are we talking about here? I mean, because like for uh, macrocellular coverage, then we're talking about like tens of miles, right? In in coverage for millimeter wave, it might be I don't know, a couple hundred meters perhaps. But for, for mm. the terahertz links, how far would away from an access point could you stand with this metaverse uh, equipment and get your gigabit simultaneously to all the other almost a thousand? I think we said users right we're also getting a gigabit so what range would be like achievable here so that answer is really dependent on what is the spectral band that we are aiming for 
because I think that is fundamentally what determines uh, how the wave propagation will uh, be behaving. And then, given that assumption, we can add antennas uh, to different sides in order to try to, to improve things. But uh, I think if we are building this in millimeter wave spectrum, well, then it will be limited to, to 100 meters or, or so, I mean, just as the system we have today. And it will reach further in line of sight scenarios, but it will be complicated to get the signals through multiple walls, for example. And if you build something at lower, like 3 gigahertz band as we're using 5G today, well, you will get similar kind of ranges as in those networks, which could be up to kilometers. Mm. 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 Yeah, and clear. Um, so returning to this argument that we need more beams, we need more bandwidth, um, and uh, we need better spectral efficiency per beam, and ultimately at some point we might even need more radiated power, then uh, what numbers are we talking about here? I mean, what, what, what is the vision? How many antennas, how many beams, how much bandwidth and so forth? Was, do you have any insight on that, Emil? Or was there like any insight delivered at the Terabit workshop that you attended? Right. So I think both myself and some of the other speakers were uh, suggesting possible ways of reaching this number of one terabit per second, uh, depending on what spectrum band you're aiming at. So, for example, there were one concrete example from Huawei, which was saying that, well, let's go for millimeter wave, where you might be able to get five gigahertz of spectrum in the, this typical 30 to 70 gigahertz band, for example. And then if you try to then serve many devices, then in those bands, you might be able to let it use a device to get four different beams. Uh, two with horizontal polarization, two with vertical polarization, and then coming from two directions each. Well, then you choose a modulation format, say 16 QAM, and each user will get like 40 gigabit per second, right? So that is certainly enough for the metaverse application we described before. And then you will need like 25 users to reach one terabit per second. And, and you can probably serve many more than that if you have mm. a, the right kind of propagation environment. Mm. So 40 gigabit per second per user, I mean, that would be a considerable margin, mar margin sufficient for um, the metaverse application. And uh, so let's repeat the numbers here. You said how much of bandwidth? You said five, five gigahertz. gigahertz, five gigahertz of bandwidth. You said four beams per user. And you said two bits per second and hertz spectral efficiency. I said four um, bits per second and hertz. Four bits. So 16 four QM. Bits. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that makes 40, 40 gigabit um, per second. And then multiplexing to 25 users at the time, that would um, make four this terabit. Mm. Um, so, I mean, multiplexing to 25 users doesn't sound really so impressive, does it? I mean, even like in uh, the early days of massive MIMO, I think folks envisioned like a race with 100 antennas. And then I think even you and me have a paper uh, suggesting that the optimum number of, under s some circumstances, optimum number of, of, of users to multiplex, wasn't it like 25 or, or 30 or something in that range? Um, and uh, I could also like uh, envision uh, much bigger multiplexing gains yeah. here, because ultimately, if you think about it at lower frequencies, 
or well at any frequency but particularly at lower frequencies i mean we have a fairly long coherence time which means that we can squeeze in a lot of orthogonal pilots so unless there is too much mobility in the environment we could assign orthogonal pilots to thousands of users which means that we can multiplex, we could learn, we could estimate a channel to thousands of users using the standard reciprocity-based, I mean, pilots and uplink and then beamforming and uplink and downlink using reciprocity. And which means in turn, of course, that, I mean, you could make efficient use of thousands of antennas, right? You know, in this uh, book that came out earlier this year on information theory for 5G and beyond, we had a chapter and... Uh, in that chapter is an example of, uh, or, or really the question is how large a massive MIMO array could ever be useful. And I think we made a case there for an array with 40,000 um, antennas, <laughs> uh, multiplexing to 40,000 users. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, so the, the idea was that, okay, so rather stationary environment at low frequencies. So we might have a 200 millisecond coherence time, 200 kilohertz coherence bandwidth, so that's 200 by 200 is 40,000, right? So you could squeeze in 40,000 orthogonal pilots, multiplex the 40,000 users, and therefore make efficient use of something like 40,000 antennas. And uh, even at modest bandwidth, I mean, you know, even with like, say, 25 megahertz of bandwidth, even with modest spectral efficiency, bit per second and hertz, then we would reach this terabit in aggregate. Yeah. So I guess there are many ways to reach the goal, right? Either super large, massive MIMO arrays at low frequency bands, which of course will be of an appreciable size physically, but nothing really prevents them from being built. No, no, exactly. To going up to going up in carrier and going up in bandwidth and using um, fewer beams or multiplexing fewer uh, users. Yeah, no, so uh, actually so that think... example that I was mentioning with 25 beams, actually the example that was presented at the workshop was with 100 beams, so then they reached 4 terabits. Oh, with 100 beams, yeah, okay. <laughs> that is actually 4 terabits. Yeah. Yeah. No, and there were many other <laughs> such examples also going down to lower frequencies, just as you uh, did. Uh, I was presenting something for just the thing we're using 5G today. I think in Sweden the operators have a collective of 400 megahertz, and then uh, I did some calculations there, what, what could be reasonable maybe you would need to send 500 beams in those scenarios to reach up to uh, one terabit mm. per second and then yeah if you split that between uh, so every use to get two or four beams well then you need a few hundred uh, uses as well mm. Mm. yeah so i mean is the overarching question here do we need millimeter wave even to achieve the terabit per second goal or would we rather just better stay with <laughs> the lower frequencies no I, I think we we don't necessarily need it and there were one interesting thing i, I picked up here uh, which i partially have heard before but also uh, when it comes to new spectrum bands that will be of interest uh, going forward so often people are like viewing that oh we were using sub 6 gigahertz band in 4g then 5g is all about millimeter wave even if we don't know now that mm. it's not and then it's from not. that projection <laughs> we would go beyond 100 gigahertz to what the band people call sub terahertz in the future yeah. but uh, one of the things that was mentioned was that there is this band 
band between 10 and 15 gigahertz, which is in between what we use today and what millimeter wave technology is supporting, that could be of interest of using in the future. And there one might potentially find a sweet spot for these kind of things as well, where you have a little bit better coverage, but you also have smaller electronics. So there were an example of that you could uh, build base stations of the same sizes of today, physical sizes, but with 4,000 antennas, and you can mm. squeeze in 64 antenna elements in every user device, and in that way you can send a lot of beams per user as well. Mm. Hmm. So why is that? I mean, that this band has not been considered so much in the past, because... Um... I'm not entirely sure. I heard people saying, talking about this band from time to time, uh, uh, but I'm not sure why people gave priority to the millimeter wave bands when we're going up in frequency uh, and not to, to this band. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So back to now all these beams and uh, propagation, because to make use of so many beams, the channel will have to be rich enough, right? I mean, well, or at least I could see that if you're like in line of sight, then, and you're you're multiplexing to many users. So, so beam here or stream means like one beam or stream or maybe a, a few per user, then it'll be sufficient that these users are at different angles of departure from the array. And if the array is large enough that you're in the geometric near field of the array, of course, you also get some depth resolution. Um, so even if they're in the same like angle of departure, it, it would still work, right, the multiplexing. Um, but if the object is to send multiple streams or beams to the same user, Will the propagation channel support that? I mean, with I can see that with a distributed MIMO array, uh, the problem goes away. But with a like co-located array that uh, is supposed to form all these beams, then won't we have a problem then? Yes, that can certainly be a problem uh, because you both need to have many possible ways that the signal can uh, go between the base station and the user device so that the uh, you could send beams in those directions and then the directions need to be relatively well balanced in terms of signal strength so that you actually benefit from uh, dividing your power between them. And uh, yeah, this is often one of the selling points of multi-user MIMO that you you easily get users with a few beams per user uh, and then you can cut many beams because you have so many users but uh, when you are going up in in frequency if that is what we will be doing going up to this 10 15 gigahertz or a millimeter wave or so then you also start to get this kind of uh, uh, you said the depth uh, uh, possibility in the radiative near field and you also get the thing that the width of the beams starts to become so narrow that you might actually not be inside the main lobe of the beam through your entire device and therefore you can send multiple uh, streams to the device. But when I heard this example about 20 beams to one user device, I think that is rather far-fetched unless you really go up towards 100 gigahertz uh, of carry frequency mm. or so. Mm. Probably, yeah. Or you're very close. Yeah. So in terms of uh, technology, what is the vision here? That we would go with fully digital beamforming or some sort of analog or hybrid technology? Or was there anything in the workshop here that uh, hinted towards what uh, 
the um, yes. directions will be. So uh, this is an interesting question. I t- got the opportunity to ask people working in the industry about specifically this. Uh, and I, I got the answer that at least going up to this uh, new band and 10-15 gigahertz, there you could easily extend today's technology and apply it there. So you could build this 4000 antenna arrays and 64 and use aside with uh, fully digital technology. Then I heard a claim that beyond that, you will need to look for other ways of building it because today's CMOS technology is not efficient enough in terms of, of power efficiency so that you will need to look for something else. So there, uh, they weren't as certain about how you were going to build it. Oh, you mean so once you reach above, you said uh, 15, yeah, 15 gigahertz, uh, for example, gigahertz of carrier frequency. Oh, that's interesting. So there's like a cutoff point there, according to them, beyond which, yeah, with fully today's technology, isn't, with today's technology. I remember some year ago we had a guest on the podcast from uh, Beamwave. Uh, the uh, Swedish startup building um, fully digital millimeter wave. Um, I recall that we discussed, I think, higher carriers than 15 at the time. Or do you remember this, Emil? Yeah, th- yeah, so, certainly. So, so they are aiming for building uh, ships that can enable you to do digital beamforming also in the millimeter wave bands. And uh, I mean, I guess the, the fact that it's a startup that works on this type of problem also illustrate that this is something where you really need to push beyond the state of the art. Yes. And yes. Uh, their claims are that you can build this in ways that are as power efficient or inefficient for that matter as uh, a hybrid beamforming or analog beamforming solution uh, if you are building it in the right way. Uh, But yeah, apparently you need to build things in a smart way. Uh, And I I think Mm. it also boils down to this question that we are using the antennas uh, in this device for two different things. One is to get uh, a beamforming gain or power gain to sort of overcome this issue that you need to divide the power between a lot of beams and bandwidth. Uh, And then we have the thing that you want to have the resolution of being able to receive and transmit multiple beams. And... We certainly need a digital solution in order to send many beams and uh, resolve them at the receiver. But there are possibilities of saving something in terms of the hardware design when you are uh, only using some uh, fraction of the uh, antenna elements for getting a stronger Mm. signal, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I I mean, I imagine there, there, there are a lot of tricks that could be used here but anyways the cutoff point i mean beyond which the fully digital isn't seen as feasible or power efficient enough then there seems to be some controversy around that number i mean you cited the figure of 15 here but others seem to think that it uh, actually goes much higher up yeah and i guess only the future can tell <laughs> what, what will be feasible to, to to build and how power efficient it will be yeah no I, I think the, the point to make is that uh, 15 is what you can reach today uh, if you just want to build a product, uh, it seemed like... Uh, with off-the-shelf available technology, got it. Yeah, yeah. Mm. and then there will be more of an engineering effort and, and new innovations in order to reach beyond that. Yes. <laughs> so we talked a lot about multi-user um, multiplexing here now uh, and reaching a terabit per second in aggregate in a multi-user scenario. Um, if we 
go back to point to point. Hmm. Would there ever be, to start with, I mean, a need to reach a terabit in a point to point application? I think at least if you want to use uh, wireless technology as a backhaul solution connecting a base station to the core network, well then, uh, as soon as the collective traffic in a cell reaches one terabit, you need this backhaul connection to, to have the same numbers. And, and I think what we have seen when it comes to millimeter wave spectrum was that it was used for backhaul links between base stations a uh, long time ago, uh, and it's still being used. So. Uh, if we will start to use even higher frequencies going beyond 100 gigahertz to what people call sub-terahertz and try to get a lot of spectrum there, uh, then it will first happen, I think, for backhaul links as well. Mm. Yeah, backhaul is absolutely a compelling uh, application. I mean, uh, no question, so for the point-to-point. But uh, Um, yeah, you would... uh, I mean, I did some calculations uh, uh, as well. I think I talked about them in in episode 10 as well. Uh, you could find maybe 50 gigahertz of unused spectrum in the sub-terahertz bands. And then you want to multiply with other things to reach up to 1,000, so you reach mm-hmm. uh, one terabit. And the terabit, yeah. yes. <laughs> so if you have a line of sight between two, two base stations, you put up these things, well, then you uh, maybe you can get up to 1,024 QAM, which is 10 bits per, per symbol. So then you have 50 times 10, you're up at 500. Okay, you need to send two yeah. signals uh, at the same time yeah, to right. polarization. So there are many ways, to, many ways to multiply integers to get to 1,000, right? Yeah, exactly. So so I think it's certainly doable there as well. And I think that is the first use case for for terabit per second in point-to-point settings. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, so one possible concern um, when speaking of this enormously high um, target of a terabit per second is energy or power consumption in the circuits and um, I mean not only the analog circuits the uh, actual RF and amplifiers and so forth Mm. but also the uh, for the digital signal processing is that something that was uh, discussed in the workshop or any insights there that you brought home yes this was something that was certainly discussed from a number of different perspectives focusing on some different components so if you start with something I mentioned myself, then uh, you were giving this examples with a very large number of antennas from, from one of your previous publications. And uh, just doing some beamforming uh, calculations, if you do the simplest kind of uh, beamforming towards users without caring about interference, well, then the complexity of the computation you need to do is like number of antennas times number of users. If you increase both of them, well, it scales uh, very rapidly. And with more fancy things, it's like the number of antennas times number of users squared, that is the complexity. So complexity increases very rapidly for, for those type of things, for example. But there's also other components there that we can go through. Mm. Um, and I think the starting point for this is really that uh, we start to see saturation of what we can do in terms of circuit technology. So people saying, well, Moore's law is uh, uh, 
is dying out so we we can't squeeze in more transistors into a, a region a certain area unit on our ships and there have been something called a denard scaling in the past that has said that uh, as the transistors get smaller the power density stays constant so computations automatically then becomes more power efficient uh, and this also seems to be a trend that has been going on for like the 1970s but now it starts to die out so uh, this is a reason that we, we can't expect that uh, just the share improvement in processor technology will uh, will come to rescue here and deal with everything we, we need to, to really design our ships and our algorithms in the right way mm. right and one of the the basic things we might be the decoder for example so we need to have something that can take the received signals and then spit out 1000 uh, gigabits per second uh, oh, that's a lot, imagine. Yeah. A thousand gigabit per second. So how does that even relate to the clock frequency, I mean, on, on a chip, right? right? Because even on like an ordinary PC or, well, pretty much any digital circuit, you can't clock them much faster than a couple of gigahertz right exactly so so when i was growing up uh, and started to follow computer <laughs> technology in the 90s then i remember seeing news articles about oh the first computer reaching one uh, gigahertz uh, of clock frequency and then we are still roughly stuck there so i think if you buy a computer today you get one five gigahertz as your clock frequency so uh, this is one of the issues then that for every clock cycle if for simplicity say we have a one gigahertz clock frequency, then for every clock cycle, you need to output a thousand bits of information. And as input for those computations, uh, you probably need more than that. So you got some examples of 4,000 bits of input information. That would be sort of the, uh, the received signal plus different kinds of side informations about the signals that you need in your decoder. And just one operation will not do that. Uh, so uh, in order to, to really be able to decode signals, then you will have to do some parallel computations and, yeah. and pipeline. And, and not just, you know, not just some parallel. I think you need to do massively parallel <laughs> yeah. processing, right? With thousands of bits at the same time in every clock cycle. So that'll require, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so there was some report from a, a European project called Epic that had been trying to build uh, uh, or design the circuits for both polar codes and LDPC codes, and I think possibly turbo codes as well, and trying to see which one would be most easily reach this uh, kind of uh, performance, and also do it with a, a limited amount of power. And uh, uh, I think what they noticed was that... Uh, what, what they found most easiest to build was uh, something for polar codes, where you need to still do a pipelining of like 60 clock cycles before an input results in output. So you need to have a lot of parallel computations there. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, if you would do the same thing with an LDPC code, maybe you needed half of that uh, uh, number of clock cycles to output uh, something from the input, but there were a lot of more, uh, apparently the algorithms are such that you need to mix around the signal from different computations yes. in different manners, and that made it much harder to build. Mm, 
Yeah, I guess with LDPC you need uh, some version of belief propagation decoder that would shuffle around likelihood values. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's like more demanding to implement. Yeah, apparently. And uh, and their goal was to reach a power consumption of the decoder of one pico uh, joule per bit. So so what one pico joule per bit. So now these numbers become at some point difficult to relate, right? right? Because <laughs> You know, pico is like, that's it. Giga is 10 to the 9. Tera is 10 to the 12. Mm. Pico is 10 to the minus 12. Is yes, that exactly. Correct? So this is sort of the opposite of Tera. <laughs> so the pico kills the Tera somehow. So it's like a terabit per second times a um, pico joule per bit. Mm. That gives us a joule per second, which is one watt. Exactly. Of power consumption for the decode. So now we're speaking only of the decoding what is was it polar or LDPC? yeah i think this or, was polar code yeah and a what is that's appreciable i mean that's like on 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 par with or other i guess the um transmit power radiated the transmit power is something like 200 milliwatt right for a for a like cellular cell phone or, or comparable device so this is more but yeah um it's comparable at least. Yeah, and you typically don't get the specifications. Uh, I mean, if you buy a, a mobile phone, yeah. uh, they are using <laughs> a baseband chip from often from Qualcomm, for example, and they don't say more than, oh, we are so power efficient, but what is the actual power right. consumption? Uh, people who are trying to do some measurements of this, uh, connecting the device, different things, might be claiming that, well, today, maybe two, three what is what the baseband ship is consuming. So, so this would is not beyond that, but it will be a big fraction of the total power consumption. And you can imagine there's a lot of other computation that also needs to be done. Yes, and I can also see that there are trade-offs here that need to be very carefully weighed. Like um, even with an LDPC code, I mean, you, you can trade performance versus decoding complexity, right? Just trading the degree distribution for, let's say, the threshold or a bit error rate. And uh, at some point, it becomes I- incredibly expensive to gain the, the last few tenths of a dB in, in sensitivity. Um, yeah. So, hmm, interesting. Wow. <laughs> but apparently, they were able to build something that almost reached this target already. So that is at least a promising step. I think heat is still one of the issues because of this Dennard scaling means that you sort of the the, the heat at this very small uh, piece of silicon is very large. And, and I also heard this is one of the challenges now with millimeter wave devices that you can buy that they work, they get the, uh, what the operators are claiming that you can get but you only get it for a small period of times because then the devices start to overheat the need to downclock itself. Yes. So do you think we'll eventually see like uh, liquid uh, uh, water-cooled uh, circuits <laughs> for millimeter waves? So when you want to get this uh, terabit and you turn on the, the water cooling of your chip, just like these gaming PCs, some of them have uh, what a cool <laughs> graphic cards, right? Right, yes. 
Yeah, just as now we, we see, like, uh, if you take Apple as an example, they have their regular devices, they have Pro and they have Extreme. Maybe we will have Extreme devices that are very... Uh, <laughs> but, but, but possibly this is something you can do with some kind of augmented virtual reality uh, device that you strap around your head, that there, there could be a lot of uh, sort of... Uh, cooling from the air around it if you open up you know it. <laughs> it'll all be weather dependent right you know when we have minus 10 15 maybe even 20 centigrades like some sometimes for a few weeks in in the winter in in, in sweden that's when you can really turn on this <laughs> a bit because then you can cool away the, the, right the, the, the cool off the heat <laughs> okay great so um so emil um was there anything else in the workshop worth mentioning i mean for example um performance metrics uh we been now so far talking only about bits really i mean a terabit per second um like raw data presumably but eventually these terabits will carry something like a video stream or well audio for that matter sensor data perhaps or information from some machine i mean could be updates from some machine training some machine learning model right or that sort of uh, data um what are the performance metrics here that folks uh, use and propose is it only raw bitrate or uh, is there something else that we that we ought to consider mm. yeah so this is something that uh, several other speakers are also bringing up that took issues with the entire premise of that we want to reach terabit per second uh, connectivity. So uh, some people were saying, well, uh, once we reach beyond a certain number, it doesn't really matter if we go up with another 10 or 100 times in speed, because what really matters for people is the, the timeliness of the data that it, uh, it is there when you need it to be hmm. there and that you can get this real time sense of things uh, yes so so when you say timeliness do you mean latency or do you mean something else because i mean I can, of course on a superficial level uh, understand and agree that well if information is like outdated in like this augmented reality or mm. metaverse uh, context and if you receive information about what somebody looked like or did or said like 10 seconds ago then it's kind of useless right? <laughs> probably but um, is timeliness the same thing as latency or, or, or is there a distinction there that could be uh, easily explained? Yeah, one can start to sort of split it up into some different aspects as well. So, so latency is one thing, I mean, just the freshness of the data. When was the data collected and how quickly do I get access to it? Uh, but then you can talk about precision. So how well are you describing this data if this is a high resolution uh, measurement or low resolution mm -hmm. measurement? And then uh, how accurately did you actually, I mean, did you compress it a lot or, or uh, how accurately uh, were the measurement as well? Uh, a very precise uh, description of something that wasn't very accurately measured from the start might also be different, not so important. So uh, one can play around yes. with a lot of different types of um, of aspects there too. Yeah, and I could also see that, I mean, some types of traffic or different types of traffic require entirely different performance metrics, right? I mean, if you're backing up your hard drive, then you can't afford a single bit error. Your bit error rate has to be zero or you could maybe afford that once in a billion times you back up your hard drive i mean you would get the bit error but that bit error would be caught by some 
CRC check or some checksum or hash mm. um, um, some or something in the end, right? But on the contrary, if you're transmitting video, it doesn't matter so much. You might lose some frames and just interpolate, right, or just blank them out. And you're transmitting updates to a machine learning model. It's the same thing. I mean, you might need to train like one more round to converge or it's not a big deal if you lose some data. Um, so it seems to me that we would need here to define for each and every application specifically what performance means, both in terms of like error accuracy or error probability and transmission errors and so forth, and in terms of like delay or latency and freshness and timeliness and, and, and so on. Yeah. And I think when people start to design new applications, for example, for the metaverse, you also have the opportunity of deciding uh, how much data do you really need to transfer and what uh, uh, data will you fill in with in your uh, yeah, augmented reality, virtuality classes. Uh, so I think the, the first metaverse Facebook kind of things now, they, people don't have legs because it's easier to transfer things in a good way if you just <laughs> yeah. limit the amount of data. Uh, and you could, if people are in a virtual world, well, maybe you only need to send information that describes the human uh, and then you can fill, create the world at different places as well. Um, yes. Yeah. So you might just send like a high level description perhaps and then use a gun or something that would just create a fictitious like yeah okay but then we i mean that seems to speak against the terabit per second uh, to some extent because then you wouldn't need as uh, high bitrate perhaps yeah so, so i think um, what typically is happening when it comes to applications is that uh, programmers or people who build applications on the one hand they need to design something that works for the moment but then they also like to not care too much about what connectivity that is required so over time it might increase a lot anyway but um, uh, on the other hand people also might like the fact that you don't get an exact representation i mean in, on zoom there are filters that is making you look a little bit more beautiful and people might actually want to have that kind of thing so you, you get <laughs> to apply them yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you want to send this kind of description of what you're doing but also create a, a yeah machine learning improved version of yourself that is visible in the metaverse right right hmm. Wow. So summing this up, Emil, what do you think? I mean, both what you brought back from the workshop and what you think in general um, is the most important or promising technology and research problem to work on um, in order to approach and reach the terabit per second goal. I mean, for example, one thing that we haven't discussed, I think, today at all is uh, RIS, reflecting intelligent surveys, and to what extent uh, those could be a uh, component here in the solution. We did talk about coding and, and MIMO, of course, and implementation and performance metrics and so forth. But what would be your summary in view of uh, having, I mean, worked on these problems, obviously, but also attended this workshop? What are the most promising directions forward for folks like us working on uh, academic research in, in wireless comms? So I think that uh, the reason to eventually reach one terabit per second somewhere will be in accumulated traffic over the area that a certain access point is delivering and the 
problem there would really be to deliver this in a consistent manner so that you don't uh, I mean, there were these simple descriptions, oh, if you can reach a certain uh, peak rate, well, then people at the edge of the cell get one-fifth of that. I think this is a bit of a uh, exaggeration because you will usually have a lot of coverage holes. And uh, yes. if you want this uh, uh, augmented reality things to work really so people can walk around everywhere in the city, that will be one of the limiting factors. So, yes. so you're, really, you're really speaking to like uniformity of quality of service here right so another way there are some spots where you can get a terabit but there are some holes where you get nothing no we need a solution where there might be some spots where you can get a terabit but there must be no hole where you can get nothing right you we must make sure you can everywhere get i don't know let's at, at least i don't know gigabit or <laughs> at least something right yeah, yeah. And, and i think the um, the answers are not really to go up to sub terahertz where uh, you will get even shorter ranges and more coverage holes, and you could potentially reach one terabit per second over point-to-point links, but why not dig fibers to our access point anyway? I probably are yeah, already doing yeah, that. I mean, so uh, I think it is more about being able to get good range from your base stations, good coverage, and then deliver something that reaches if uh, uh, you or maybe 10 gigabit per second most of the time to all the users. I think that is what you would like to have. Yes, and and handling mobility, right? I mean, if you stand still, then you might just as well connect the cables. <laughs> the, the real difficulty in wireless is always to handle mobility, I think. Yeah. And you probably need different bands uh, to uh, and the mix of different bands and their capabilities. So it's not one or, or the other or the things I described, but it, you try to use yes. a, a good mix of that. Yes, I mean, for example, there is this vision of a tandem architecture where um, you have a uh, sub 10 gigahertz system um, operating through, well, some form of distributed MIMO eventually, providing macro coverage and uh, ensuring this uniformity of the quality of service so that everybody gets like a, some minimum connectivity whatever minimum means here mm. um, maybe even like a pretty high rate in fact uh, and then on top of that uh, you might have um, sub terahertz or millimeter wave systems that provide spotwise extremely high uh, bit rates and then of course optimizing these components together and making that system in in total uh, delivering at optimum um, is an important challenge. Yeah, and then certainly energy efficiency to actually be able to build this without spending a, a huge amount of, of power yes. and to uh, yeah really making sure that this becomes more accessible <laughs> both in terms of coverage and it's not only something for the inner cities but uh, that you can use this at many places. I think these are important Covering things. the countryside with a terabit per second. Yeah, or at least <laughs> 10 gigabits per second uh, uh, in your your house in the countryside. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Great. Um, well, anything else, um, Emil, that you brought back from uh, the workshop? And... No, I think it's interesting to see that there is a vibrant research now towards 6G. Maybe this is even further into the future that we'll reach these type of things. But I think people start to do real research now and present things and not only visions about the future but a lot yes. of these things that were described was actually uh, research that is ongoing or already have been finished in different projects so i think that is promising towards the future 
Mm. I fully agree. That's really great to see. So with that, I think we might be closing up here, Emil. Mm. Thank you very much. That was a very educational conversation. Thank you very much for the, for the questions and to the audience for, for staying with us. To the audience, don't forget to like and subscribe us on YouTube. Mm.